0: Welcome along to this week's edition of 20 Minute Topic with me Marcus Stead and I'm joined as ever by Greg Lance Watkins and this is a very special edition and we're going to give you a triple helping of 20 Minute Topic to celebrate the fact that at 11pm last Friday night the United Kingdom finally left the European Union at long last. So we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to update you on the situation with the coronavirus. We did a special midweek podcast about that um, just the other day. And things have become pretty damn serious with that. So Greg and I will be talking about that. And we would also be talking about the appalling way veteran newsreader Alistair Stewart has been treated by his employers following some remarks he made on Twitter. Greg, we're recording this podcast not far off 1 a.m., on Saturday morning, the United Kingdom formally left the European Union just under two hours ago. I don't know how you're feeling this evening, or this morning as it is now, but what was going through my mind as 11 o'clock approached was the people I've known, some of the names we talked about last week, famous people I didn't know who didn't live to see this day, but all the activists I did know, many of whom have sadly not made it, to early 2020, to the day we leave the European Union. I'd like to thank everyone who's done their bit. I've been a Eurosceptic campaigner since 1997. You have been against the project for far, far longer, as we discussed last week. I'd like to thank everybody, some now deceased, some my age, some a good bit older than me. And also, I've been quite inspired in the last few years by people younger than me, some students, people who didn't go to university as well, who have all done their bit to make this day happen. How are you feeling right now that we have formally left the European Union?
1: Well, having actively campaigned to leave the Europe, not to join and subsequently to leave, I have never varied in that uh, since about 1960. Um, and it's exactly one hour and 50 minutes ago we left the European Union, Um, I'm really, um, completely and utterly, over the moon about it. I appreciate there's a lot of pitfalls and problems ahead. I know that they will be forced to try and make deals by compromising things we want. However, of all the politicians in to, to be in office potentially of the assorted mostly rubbish that we've had in Parliament for the last 50 years, I actually have more faith in Boris's ability um, than almost anybody else. I'd quite like Boris to have been in a team with people like Norman Tebbett mm. and A few others that I think we could rely on. Mm. However, he has a bit of a reputation for being, um, shall we say, a political and journalistic white boy, uh, for cutting corners, uh, for being lazy, for uh, not having an eye for detail. Uh, But let's face it, since he has been prime minister, I don't think you can make any of those accusations against him. I have I been
0: saying for many years, and there's writings, archive writings of mine available on the internet, about Boris Johnson's character flaws, which are along the lines of what you've just outlined there. And we, you and I discussed on a 20-minute topic podcast, round about the time he became Prime Minister, that he needed people around him to make up for his own character flaws, um, his lack of attention to detail. And as um, you mentioned, Norman Tebbit, and I'm glad you did, because um, when Boris Johnson became editor of the Spectator magazine, the board of the Spectator at the time, uh, the board who were above him, who we, Boris Johnson answered to, Norman Tebbit was on that board. And he said that um, Boris Johnson deserved a lot of credit at the Spectator for uh, stabilising it after a difficult period. He was a man of great wit, intellect, and a skilled writer and a skilled editor. Norman had questioned whether he had the skills to be prime minister. Now, to be fair to Norman, yes, I appreciate the work he does on the Telegraph online. He's still a great writer there. But Norman is now 88 years of age. He's had health problems in the last few years, though he is sprightly for his age. He's had to give up shooting. Um, One of his big hobbies in life is um, shooting uh, birds out of the sky and then cooking them. He cooks everything he shoots. His old age has caught up with him in that sense. I gather he's got enough on his plate in other ways as well. So maybe Norman, best will in the world, yes, turned him to advice, but maybe we have to be realistic about what he can offer at his age. But I do agree with you that Boris Johnson needs the right sort of people around him at the moment. But somebody, um, somebody tweeted me earlier this evening um, asking, how are you more free now than you were prior to 11 o'clock on Friday evening? I've got a way I'd like to answer that, but how would you answer
1: that? Oh, quite simple. Um, It's not about freedom as such. It's about freedom of choice. Uh, I'm not bound by the choices of a collection of unelected bureaucrats who are pandering uh, to a dream they have for a rather crazy social experiment um, of Uh, one size fits all, and trying to appease 28 completely different nations as if it was the United States of Europe.
0: Yeah, and what this is really all about is that I wonder why people hold the opinions they have. Why do people think the things that they do? And I find that a lot of people who have been at their most bitter and vitriolic in the last few years are what I would call the middle-class intellectual remainers. And I ask myself, why are they so keen on this project? And I think it's because they want the world to think that they are cosmopolitan and internationalist in outlook. Now, I do consider myself internationalist in outlook, as I have put on Twitter in the last few hours. I eat a lot of Italian food. I am a great lover of European music, from classical to rock to dance music. I find the history of European countries and the architecture of European countries fascinating. I believe that when difficulties arise between nations, it is better to sit round a table and and discuss it and try and find a way through rather than go around shooting and bombing each other. I believe there are certain areas where it is just basic common sense to work closely together. However, what I do not believe in is a political union where there is corruption, where there is a lack of democracy, where I cannot remove those who make decisions that affect my life, and where I am entangled in a legal system that is very different to my country's own legal system, where we do not have control over our borders, we do not have the freedom to form trade deals with the wider world, we do not have the freedom to have a truly independent British foreign policy. That is what Brexit means to me being freed from those shackles.
1: I think you're you're right there, except um you mentioned shooting and bombing each other. Let's face it, the the CRS in France um are beating the bejesus out of their population for having the temerity to want to peacefully protest.
0: Right, I'm gonna stop you, you there. I'm gonna it. stop you there because a lot of pe- I know what you're talking about, but a lot of people won't. And now I'm going to explain a little bit about what you're going to say there. So forgive me for this, but I think it's important. For every single weekend, for the best part of two years now, there have been violent protests in Paris. The the name we're looking for is Gilles de Jeunes, isn't it?
1: And Gilles Jeunes.
0: Yeah, OK. Gilles Jeunes. You got it. They are confronting, and these are people who are unhappy with various aspects of life in France, the Macron government, people in industry who are not happy. There's all sorts of, it's a coalition of protesters and they are having these protests around the Champs-Élysées in Paris and people have lost eyes, people have lost limbs in confrontations with the police. And yet we are hearing about what's going on in Hong Kong on our news bulletins, on the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 and everywhere else. And yet an hour and a half away from us on the Eurostar somewhere we can all easily get to, even if for a day trip these days. They are not reporting on these protests, and you have to ask why.
1: I might add that this is occurring in every major city and cornerbation in France. Hmm. And we had the spectacle last week that wasn't shown on British television of the French um, enforcement, political enforcement police, the CRS, fighting with the French Fire Service.
0: Exactly, and there was
1: footage on social media, and this is one of the plus points of social media. So, Marcus, don't talk to me about the European project Mm. doing anything to stop people fighting. Uh, The European project has done absolutely nothing to maintain peace in Europe. Mm. NATO has maintained that, very largely with the help of the Americans. Nothing to do with the European Union, where you may recall that the European Union all sat round a table and agreed they would not recognise the independent parts of former Yugoslavia. And within one week, the Germans had recognised Croatia because they do what they like.
0: But there's an element of what you just said about the firefighters taking on the police in those protests in Paris. And these are the firefighters, the very people who will save you from a burning building. These are the very people, one set of emergency services taking on another. And Uh, don't
1: think this is unique to France. hmm. Look at um, the Catalans in Spain when the Spanish Civil Guard was turned on the Catalans in Barcelona and... They were beating up elderly people who were peacefully protesting and campaigning for liberation from Spain for Catalan as an independent country.
0: Yes, and I saw footage of that away from the mainstream media of little old ladies having their hair pulled, screaming. And I saw, going back to Paris and the situation there, footage on social media of the firefighters and the police Scuffling, And yet, for some reason, the mainstream media in this country is not reporting on what is going on within easy commuting distance of St Pancras Station in London on a Eurostar. I'll tell
1: you why. Quite simply, the mainstream media is made up of the woke brigade with a positive and decisive bias, almost without exception, in favour of the European Union and Britain being a member of it because they receive immense subsidies from our taxes via Europe, and they are receiving travel subsidies, they get free uh, studios, they have endless stories um, to report, and a never-ending flow of European salesmen called MEPs trying to get across the message of how wonderful it is, without everybody realizing the wonderful part is the fact that they are paid a salary that they couldn't hope to earn under normal circumstances. No wonder the MEPs were so saddened by the fact that we were leaving the European Union. Well, this
0: brings me on now to what we've seen this evening on mainstream British television. I was flicking between um, BBC, ITV and Sky News over the course of the evening, both immediately before and immediately after 11 o'clock, and I ended up settling on RTUK. Um, which is um, RT stands for Russia Today but um, they've expanded their London-based operations rather a lot in the last few years and I'll come on to RT UK in a minute because they were light years ahead of the other broadcasters but what we saw on BBC News was this sort of mournful tone taken where they kept crossing to uh, Edinburgh and they were saying oh this is a very sad night for Scotland and um, Then they were crossing to Laura Koonsberg, who was saying, oh, there's a lot of work still to be done. Indeed, there is a lot of work still to be done. But she took a very mournful tone. Um, And then you had Katia Adler in Brussels telling us what a sad night it was in Brussels. You would never guess that this isn't, some, uh, this isn't something that people didn't want. This is something people voted for in the 2016 referendum. They voted for it again in the 2017 general election. And they voted for it again in the 2019 general election, Last just, well, just over a month ago, before Christmas, when Boris Johnson's Conservatives were returned with a majority of 80. Then I switched over to ITV, and we had Tom Bradby and his guest, Alistair Campbell, Alistair Campbell has never been elected by anybody ever. And yet he was uh, allowed to to rant and rant because he, he rants a lot, Alistair Campbell. He's got quite an unpleasant manner. He was ranting and ranting, barely without interruption at all, saying what a terrible disaster this was and how uh, th- th- this paradigm of virtue and truth. This is the guy, by the way, and I'm aware we've got quite a lot of younger listeners who might not understand this. This was the guy that peddled the lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which did not exist back in 2003. He lied, and he's daring to accuse Brexit campaigners of lying? Come on. So then I switched over to Sky News. They had a newspaper review. Both newspaper reviewers, as Ian Dale rightly pointed out, both newspaper reviewers remained supporters. Ian Dale then got into a Twitter spat with um, the senior Sky presenter, Adam Bolton. Now, Sky News used to be, up until about five years ago, a viable alternative to the bias of the BBC. Nowadays, it's practically a clone of the BBC. So, that was my experience of switching between channels this evening.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. But, on the other hand, I note with interest, although you live in virtually central Cardiff, um, and I, both of us have been campaigners for many years... Uh, myself rather longer because i've been around rather longer campaigners for parting company with the european project Mm. and yet neither of us went out celebrating the fact that ambitions that we've had in my case for 60 years have been fulfilled tonight Mm. it was no call to go out and celebrate with friends because I knew that if I did, during the course of the evening, some toxic little twat will come up telling me what a disaster it was.
0: Yep, yeah, yeah, and do you know, you are and right. I live
1: without it, I just don't need it.
0: Well, you are right, and inevitably, all these people have come out to play on Twitter. Uh, in, in the last few hours in fact for the mo- most of the day but I also know if I went uh, I, I had one opportunity to go to London somebody suggested that I go to something there I didn't want to know I think there was something else going on in Cardiff but I just know having been in this game since 1997 that the Eurosceptic movement has its share of pretty toxic characters within it, there are certain people I've met along the way who I just do not wish to rub shoulders with. And by that, I mean people who are affiliated to Nigel Farage, I wouldn't want to know. Um, some of the loopier elements I met through UKIP. Um, so I'm, I'm actually quite content because I sat this evening and I was thinking about myself and, you know, at 36, I've got, well, hopefully more than half my life ahead of me, though you never know. But I'm thinking about people younger than me, um, people, many, many friends of mine, an increasing number of friends of mine are having children now. uh, And the sort of country we can build as a result
1: of this. Interestingly, I have um, given independent talks lasting for three hours or so on how the European Union works, its history. I've run weekend training courses with journalists and politicians on them, uh, clarifying areas of European structure, uh, EU structure, should I say, um, and EU law. And I really don't want to be lectured by somebody who hasn't got a bloody clue what they're talking about, based on Oh, but my children won't be able to travel anymore. Ah, can,
0: we st- can we stop there, please? Because I saw a few of those going round, and a friend of mine sent me a WhatsApp message saying somebody, um, some late middle aged woman was on Sky News uh, saying that, oh, my son's a musician. He won't be able to travel to Europe anymore. That is absolute codswallop. Let me just make a few observations, if I may. First, they, interviewed,
1: they interviewed that daughter.
0: I didn't see it, so I'm going to have to accept what you're saying on that, but I'm sure you're right. I just want to make a few points on that. The first is that for most countries which in what we now call the European Union, visa requirements were removed as long ago as the 1950s. So even before we joined the EEC in the early 1970s, you could travel to these countries without a visa. Point two. There are at least 130 countries in this world today where a British citizen can travel to without a visa. Point three, there are many European countries that are not in the European Union, which yet again you can travel to without a visa. It is not difficult to go on holiday to Norway or to Switzerland or even do some business there for a period of time without a visa you do not need one so can we please stop all this rubbish about i won't be able to go on holiday to italy
1: or spain anymore it is absolute have to my money. Um, and can i add to the fact here as opposed to just the tendency to get wound up and annoyed i have been to uh norway and i've actually been into sweden but it doesn't really count Holland, Belgium, East and West Germany, Switzerland, Austria, uh, Yugoslavia, all of the constituent parts. I have been in Italy, France, Andorra, Monaco, Luxembourg, Spain, Portugal, and Gibraltar. Well, that was before we were members of the European Union. I haven't been to any of those countries since we've been in the European Union. Uh, Because I was busy traveling um, amongst other countries, most countries in Africa, a number of countries in South America, countries uh, from Mexico um, and through the Caribbean and America, because earlier still in my life, I had traveled around the Far East. I'd lived in the Middle East for a while. Uh, So... I've clocked up somewhere over 60 countries that I've lived in, worked in, or visited for a period of more than a couple of weeks' holiday. Mm. And none of those countries have I visited, other than with a British blue passport. None of those countries in Europe have I visited since we've been in the eu and i have never had a problem in any of those countries including poland russia and czechoslovakia
0: well here we are now you've got countries i'm not going to list them all because we really will be here all night but you can go to places like argentina mexico um, israel jamaica japan the Philippines, there's a huge list of countries a British citizen can go to without needing a visa. That is the reality. So, this nonsense that being outside the European Union will mean we can't go to these countries anymore is beyond absurd, and people should stop scaremongering and they should stop talking rubbish that has
1: no basis in fact. And let us also face another fact there are something like 160 different countries that trade with the European Union and have absolutely no agreement with them.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: and they're they're on WTO terms. Even if we find that the European Union is just being obdurate, bloody-minded and selfish, we will find that we are, in fact, as Theresa May kept repeating, we are better off with no deal than a bad deal.
0: Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. And I would also say that if we find ourselves in a position towards the end of this year, where it's very clear that the European Union is trying to bully us in some way, I will put up with a certain level of hardship rather than surrender to it. And by that I mean, I cannot think of a single item of food or drink that could not be sourced from outside the European Union if we absolutely had to. And with that thought in mind... There would be a problem in the short term in that um, supply lines would have to be rebalanced as, as food and drink manufacturers got their products and their ingredients from elsewhere. But they could sort that out within a matter of months. Your oranges from the, from the Caribbean or wherever rather than from Spain. It wouldn't take long to reposition um, your supply lines. And if that means I have to go a few months without oranges on the supermarket shelves, I will put up with that rather than give in to bullying. So that's something to bear in mind. But to go back to where I was a moment ago, and this is an important point, you and I have both been qu- quite critical of the, uh, the mainstream media so far in this podcast. I want to pay tribute to the effort that RTUK made with their special Brexit coverage this evening. And I want to pay tribute to Bill Dodd, their anchorman, Kate Partridge, who was chairing the SOFA discussions, Shadia edwards Dasherty, their political correspondent, I know what Shadia's politics are and I disagree with her politics, but to her credit, she does a tremendous job of being genuinely impartial when she is at work. Kate Partridge, chairing the SOFA discussion, was asking the right questions throughout. Bill Dodd was a fair and balanced anchor man, and they would have had a tiny fraction of the budget on the BBC news programme and the ITV news programme and the Sky News programme and yet their coverage... Was vastly superior.
1: The coverage that I saw. Um, I didn't watch the BBC because I don't watch the BBC. But I spent maybe two minutes um, on that on their two channels. I don't watch um, news on ITV because all too often it has that idiot Peston on it, uh, who I find unlistenable. To uh, Channel Four doesn't do news anymore. It does propaganda.
0: The world of to John Snow.
1: Yeah. Um and his sidekicks and it's mostly drivel anyway. And I was watching um atrocious um K brilli this morning on Sky. She really is unwatchable. Do you know what? <clears throat> Let's stop
0: there. Let's stop there for a sec because you you make an important point. The decline of Sky News over the course of the last ooh, five, maybe a bit more years, has been quite something. Because I mentioned earlier on how Sky used to be a real alternative to the bias of the BBC. You had some t- top top people working there, whether it was Jeremy Thompson, Glenn O'Glasa, Mark Longhurst, Peter Spencer. Tim Marshall, I think, is one of the great foreign policy analysts. He was their foreign affairs editor. Lorna Dunkley was a good newsreader. You used to have a nightly finance programme with Jeff Randall. Richard Littlejohn worked there with a nightly show for years. Today, the channel it has become, with its relentless anti-Brexit propaganda, has been absolutely appalling.
1: Yes, but all they actually do is you get camera on there And all she does is whine Mm. endlessly about something or other. Um, It's all so lightweight; you couldn't begin to describe it as news. Yeah,
0: and when she she puts her foot in it, she's so clever. Yeah, when she puts her foot in it, she really puts her foot in it. It's like when um, when Cliff Mitchellmore, the broadcaster, died a few years ago. She put on Twitter, "Sad to hear uh, Cliff Mitchellmore has died," and she put a picture of Malcolm Muggeridge, who died in 1990.
1: Well, she probably thought they were the same person, (laughs) knowing her command of the news. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And she's so full of herself, she puts tweets out saying, this is how it should be done. Watch my clip.
0: Uh, do you remember a few years ago, there was a terrorist attack? I think it was in Spain. It may have been France. Forgive me on that. She found a picture of a dog, which a stray dog, and she said, look at its sad eyes. And I thought, how pathetic is that? It's a dog, you know?
1: Yeah, and um, bred to have sad eyes so that it will find an owner. Um,
0: <laughs> like her?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, and she, what does she have? Um, and why would I care? Yeah, she's always saying it on news programs because news is her program. I don't care she's got red setters. I I really don't care. Setters in the main are all but brain dead on a good day. Yeah, and it's... You've got to help them find their way home. Yeah,
0: and it's irrelevant stuff anyway. So I'll conclude these particular remarks by, again, well done to RTUK on their coverage this evening. Well done to Bill Dodd, Kate Partridge, Shadia edwards Dashdy, and the rest of the team, and all the people behind the scenes, bearing in mind the limited resources you had, compared to um, the so-called mainstream media. You did a superb job, and you could be proud of yourselves. You led the way this evening. And Okay, let me play devil's advocate a little bit on LBC radio on a weekday morning when James O'Brien or James O'Breakdown, as he's now known by us Brexiteers, is being snide and condescending to Brexit supporters. And they get flustered when they speak to him because um, he's got control of the switches. And he says, which EU law are you most looking forward to getting rid of? Let me ask you that question.
1: Which EU law? Oh. The fact that they can appoint almost all of their senior personnel in the EU without election from amongst their cronies. That is part of the structure law of the EU.
0: Now then, Greg, a bit of a follow-up from our midweek special podcast on the coronavirus situation. Since we recorded that podcast on Tuesday, things have gone very much the way you thought they would in terms of numbers Can you tell us exactly where we are at this moment in time, very early on Saturday morning?
1: I hate to say it, worse than I had expected at this stage, Mm. in that this morning the figures were about 9,000 cases. Now we have 11,948 cases, of which, and I'm flicking between charts here, Uh, 11,791 are in China where there have been 259 deaths. There have been no deaths anywhere else in the world yet. However, I think it's inevitable there will be deaths. Uh, So we are now sitting on uh, to do a rundown, if I may, Uh, 11,791 cases in China, 19 in Thailand, 17 in Japan, 16 in Singapore, 13 in Hong Kong, 11 in South Korea, 10 in Taiwan, 9 in Australia, 8 in Malaysia, 7 in the United States, Germany and Macau, 6 in France five in Vietnam, four in the United Arab Emirates and Canada, two in the United Kingdom, Russia and Italy, and one in India, Finland, Sweden, Sri Lanka and Cambodia. That is the sum total tonight, uh, early hours of the morning, one thirty on Saturday.
0: Do we know how many of these people who have sadly died, are elderly people or people with weak immune systems, or is this a strain of flu that healthy people who would normally fight it off are not being able to do so this time?
1: Uh, We have no idea, to be honest. It's not being announced, Um, but uh, we can assume nothing in that the Spanish flu at the end of the First World War which killed more people than were killed by the First World War. It killed uh, 600,000 Americans alone, minded that these were Americans who were in the main in Europe at the end of the First World War, uh, far more than were killed in the trenches. So that one, that as a virus, attacked the young The fit and those with a good immune system and the elderly were relatively safe from it. Uh, Not safe, uh, wrong word, but had lower mortality percentages.
0: And why was that?
1: uh, Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So what you're saying is... Don't forget that we only defined... Uh, the virus in Spanish flu, maybe 20, 25 years ago, on exhumations, we were able to identify the flu. We didn't have the ability to identify what virus it was.
0: So what um, you're saying is we don't know who, what demographics are being affected by this and who is dying from it.
1: As yet, all that we know is 259 people have died in Ch- in China and we assume because they don't seem to be breaking down the figures, uh, those were in Wuhan, wu
0: And we have seen the British people in the Wuhan area being flown back.
1: We've uh, seen some of them being flown back.
0: Yes, some have chosen not to come back.
1: Ooh, not just chosen, there are quite a number of angry individuals there who feel that more should have been done uh, to get them back because they were told that they had to get to the airport by a certain time. One individual uh, was told seven minutes before he was supposed to be at the airport 25 miles away, and others were told that they had to get to the airport uh, and they did not have any means of transportation because the transport service has been closed down and that you need passes to be able to use a vehicle. And there were those who didn't own vehicles so they didn't get to come out there is still talk um we heard from michael gove this morning uh that there is a possibility another flight might be laid on however another aspect of this is the difficulty uh, that the british government is in my opinion rather playing down in uh, persuading the Chinese authorities to release individuals from China to fly to Britain.
0: Now let's think about what's actually happened here with these British citizens um, who were on this flight. Point one, we have all been on flights, well lots of us have anyway, I certainly have, where you've been on a flight and you've caught a bug because you're in a tube thousands of feet up in the sky, the air is circulating and anyone who's got a bug, it will pass right the way through. Is putting that number of people in a, what is effectively a small container in a, confined into a small space for all those hours with air being recycled time and time again with this deadly virus going round, is that really a good idea?
1: i suppose it's better than staying in a town where there is there is the okay outside possibility that treatment might break down and uh, you could find yourself the wrong side of treatment because you're not chinese in uh, a town a city of 11 million chinese uh, minded that um, racism in Uh, China is rife when you think that there are some two million Muslims in prison camps Uh, because of their religion. um, I don't think we have any right to have any faith in the service British citizens or any other foreigners uh, might receive. Yeah, I'm so sure what you're saying then, therefore, superb. is that,
0: is that bringing, them, bringing them back was the least worst option in effect. And then upon landing, they were taken from the RAF base. I think it was RAF Bryce Norton, wasn't it? It and, was
1: Bryce Norton.
0: Yeah, and they were taken from there in four coaches, they, from the, the company Horseman Coaches. So four Horseman Coaches, make your own jokes by all means. They were taken from there to Arrow Park Hospital in Wirral where they will stay for the next 14 days quarantined. And by the way, I believe this also includes the coach drivers, where they will stay for the next 14 days in what was student accommodation, um, surplus student accommodation, halls, if you like. Quite comfortable conditions. It won't be uncomfortable for them, but they will not be allowed to leave there for the next 14 days. Do you think this response has been the right response? And add to that, if you will, please, we now know that two people have been taken ill in the Newcastle-upon-Tyne area, do you believe that the hospital there has taken the right response as well?
1: The hospital in Newcastle, there's two factors on these two individuals. They are two individuals of the same family. It is believed, though I don't think it's been officially confirmed, that they're of Chinese origin, who were staying in a hotel, whether as guests or as staff returning to work, Uh, I don't know, um, who presented five days ago uh, with flu-like symptoms, but but when tested were negative in terms of virus, uh, who presented once again, um, I understand, late on, I'm losing track of days, late on Thursday and presented with the same symptoms, but worse. And now it was possible to prove that they had the virus. And so they have been held uh, in on the top floor, which is the isolation ward of the hospital in uh, Newcastle. And I understand that is designed as an isolation uh, ward, and that would probably mean with negative air pressure for security reasons and highly trained staff however I heard uh, but not very well clarified that the hotel itself where they were staying has also been put on some sort of lockdown uh, just in case in the at least five days uh, between the first report of their illness and the second report uh, they have been uh, contagious and potential for spreading the vaccine amongst those they met with in the hotel uh, so there is some concern that that could turn into being rather worse than it looks on first sight yes uh, I, I think where we, the we, right we,
0: thing. i i i think where we are now is based on what you said when we spoke earlier in the week it's been a little worse than you thought it was going to be but we're by no means encouraging any alarm or panic i think things will be clearer still in the days ahead but to give some perspective on this as well people as people know one of the ways i make my living is through covering snooker And the China Open snooker tournament, which is due to begin in late March and continue into early April, has already been postponed. That will not take place. So they're even looking that far ahead already, expecting this quarantine to continue for some considerable time. We are playing the long game here. That much is clear, I think.
1: I think uh, to add to uh, that factor, British Airways have cancelled all flights to China until the end of February Mm. they are taking this very seriously uh, which leads me to believe that not only do we know that this is a worse outbreak than the SARS outbreak um, of 2003 and I say worse it is worse at this stage of the outbreak because SARS uh, killed 747 I think it was in two thousand and three uh, and MERS uh, Middle East respiratory syndrome killed eight hundred and thirty something uh, in two thousand and twelve. however, at this stage in the outbreak two hundred and fifty nine is notably more than in either of those outbreaks, and eleven thousand seven hundred and 91 in China alone uh, is uh, much higher than one would have hoped. Plus, they were period and with SARS and MERS, uh, I believe that the incubation period was consider considerably shorter than that of the present outbreak novel, uh, which is. Merely a mutation of the coronavirus, which has a, uh, an incubation period of between 12 and 14 days. And that
0: really is the big problem, isn't it? That You can be walking around <coughs> leading your life perfectly normally for 12, 14 days, and then you begin to fall ill. And then even if you do begin to fall ill, is this just a bad cold or a dose of flu or is it something far more serious? These are the things we're up against here. So what you and I are really saying is, yes, this does appear to be serious. We're not talking of world epidemics or anything like anything like on that scale yet. But this is not something to be taken lightly. So that's
1: not something to panic about. But only an idiot wouldn't take a pragmatic overview of the potential because if it isn't this instance that becomes a terrifying large terrifyingly large pandemic it will happen
0: yes because the history of the world suggests that in terms of time scales in between large pandemics we're long overdue one and it will come at some point none of us knows when probably won't be this time but we can't say it definitely won't be this time so that's where we are okay and the final part then of uh, this week's extended podcast uh we're going to talk about this situation with um, the veteran newsreader Alistair Stewart who has left ITN or it looks as though he's been pushed out of ITN due to an exchange on Twitter and I'm going to bring up what's actually happened here in that um Alistair was involved in an exchange with um an individual, shall we say, Um, and Alistair quoted from a Shakespeare play, and I believe the play is uh, Measure for Measure, and the quote is, But man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence like an angry ape. Now, Alistair said that to a black man who, it turns out, and I exposed this on Twitter, and I know many, many thousands of people have seen it and even commented on it. That tweet went nuts that I put out. This individual who played the race card has a long track record of playing the race card. And Alistair has used exactly the same quote in a debate with a white person some months ago. And I think what's happened here is extremely dangerous, and I think it's tyrannical, that somebody can lose their job for quoting Shakespeare, in effect. Alistair Stewart, a little bit about his background, as a, I know what his politics are. He's to the left of me politically. As a young man, he was very active in the National Union of Students. He was friends with people like the veteran Labour politician John Reid. He joined Southern Television in 1976. And in nineteen eighty he joined ITN. Uh he worked he worked there till nineteen ninety-three when he was do he did other things for ten years. He worked on London Tonight, um the the programme for Carlton LWT and worked on various other projects also at GMTV for a period with his own Sunday political show. Then from two thousand three to the present day, or till this week I should say, he was back at ITN again. Um so he's been a presence on our screen since 1980 almost consistently and if you live in the south of England further still going back to 1976 he is popular with his colleagues there is no hint whatsoever that he is a racist individual those who know him will tell you he hasn't got a racist bone in his body he is an old school journalist with old-fashioned values and old-fashioned ethics he is of the old school and what is interesting, and I know you and I have discussed this over the phone, Greg, in fairly recent times, is in recent months, Alistair has been increasingly outspoken on Twitter against modern trends in news. In that he thinks that there's in, across the broadcast media in general, to go back to where we were on our Brexit discussion, there is far too mi- much mixing up of fact and opinion. And he has said repeatedly that people have to decide whether they want to be reporters or analytical commentators because they're two very different jobs he had a very public spat with Lewis Goodall the reporter on Sky News until December who's now moved to the BBC's Newsnight over his lack of impartiality and Alistair we know he likes a drink he's a pretty much a chain smoker Alistair he also we know his drinking has got him into trouble historically we know all about that that's well documented I'm not here to talk about that but it's clear that he's gone on Twitter late at night quite often and in recent months he seems outspoken and somewhat irritated by uh, modern trends in, in news and to me his ethics and his values are way ahead of certain other people who work at ITN these days and I think they have made a grotesque mistake in getting rid of him I also believe They were looking for an excuse to get rid of him, because if you can lose your job for quoting Shakespeare, I think we really are in tyrannical times.
1: I would agree with you. But firstly, I think a reassurance is needed for everybody at this stage, particularly whoever holds the royalties and copyright on Richard Burton's recordings. Marcus is no challenge. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but, uh, on a more serious note, I really can't stand these revolting little individuals who are so racist that they hide behind their various technicolors to claim the moral high ground by finding ways to invent racism in others. Have they not looked in the mirror? It is they who are the racists. It is impossible, absolutely impossible, for me to offend somebody of any colour by calling them... A negro, coloured, black. They can choose to be offended if they wish, but it is not necessarily my intent when using those words to provide examples of situations. And furthermore, I am fed up with people who, in a quite ridiculous pretense, claim that because they're black, they can make jokes about If you want to make a joke about Brits and Limeys, get on with it. I don't care. You're not offending me. You couldn't offend me whatever you say. Because actually, I don't respect what you're saying to start with. So, let's accept that this can only be a deliberate action of being offended. Yeah, but it goes
0: further than especially that.
1: Especially in especially in an instance like this where it, it is patently obvious that no offence was intended or implied. A passage from Shakespeare was read out to give a definition of a a, a type of behaviour, not the colour of somebody's skin. And by the way, some apes come in orange.
0: Well, yeah, that is absolutely true. But I think the point is here, people will make their own minds up. Now, I know you're not racist. You haven't got a racist bone in your body. I know that. I personally don't choose to use some of the words you used a minute ago, but I'll defend your right to do it Um, because those sort of comments can get taken the wrong way. What I would say is that Alistair did none of those things. Now, I know people, I've got a number of friends actually who have worked with Alistair and speak very highly of him. I've never been lucky enough to meet him or work with him, though I would be quite happy to do so. What I would say is, what is a little disappointing from my point of view, is that those who have spoken out about the absurdity of it in the way I have, are mainly people who have worked with him, and I'm going to name them, Ed Mitchell is one, Glenn O'Glaser is another. People who worked with Alistair years ago have said, this is absurd, ITN are being completely ridiculous here. Those who've worked with him in the present sphere are very often saying they're sorry he's leaving and they enjoyed his company and it'd be hugely missed. I think what we could have done with is some of the current ITN staff saying this is absurd and it is ridiculous and to say so publicly. I gather there's a petition going round in that building in Inn Road, but I think they should say so publicly.
1: I think your drawback there is quite simply that the media rarely tells the truth. And we will have noticed, um, anybody who pays attention, uh, the number of biographies of people who have milked the BBC, particularly year in, year out, for overblown salaries for reading autocues, who, as soon as they resign, or should I say retire, to draw their pension, write exposés saying how biased, how dishonest, how corrupt their employer was. Yeah, but I'm glad they They did it. I'm glad they did
0: it. I'm glad they did it because if it wasn't for certain individuals having done that, we wouldn't have the insight we do have about how bad things have got in there. I'd
1: rather like to think that they would have had the integrity to say it and not perpetuate that bias and that prejudice in order to earn an income and then to tell everybody how biased and how prejudiced they've been in order to earn money on a book.
0: Well, it's the old thing of he who pays the piper calls the tune, which is a horrible saying, but I'm afraid there's a lot of truth in it. If you want to get on in life in certain organisations, certainly in the BBC, and bearing in mind I worked at the BBC on and off between 2006 and 2008, those who seemed to get on most were those who kept their mouths shut and uh, bootlicked the right people. That's how it always seemed to me in that building.
1: I would suggest then that they have no right ever again in their lives to criticise a prostitute for charging for sex.
0: Well, that's one way of putting it. But looking at where we are with this
1: situation now, they prostituted now, their ability.
0: Well, yeah, they they have no doubt about that. But looking at where they where we are now with Alistair Stewart, um, he was cut down to a part time contract about three or four years ago, round about the time Mark Austin was demoted from News at Ten and to make way for Tom Bradby with his very different presenting style full of little asides and I don't know about you type comments and stroking his chin when they cut back to the studio at the end of sad stories whereas Alistair Stewart he was, he was cut back at the age of about 65 he's what 68 now I think he is now whether that was an age thing or whether that was because his values and his journalistic standards are old-fashioned and when he has conducted interview programs and election night programs and debate programs he has always been straight down the line impartial you would never guess in a million years what his views are because he's genuinely fair and when he's reading the news he just sticks to facts rather than his opinions that sort of journalism has gone badly out of fashion you combine that with his outspokenness on twitter in recent months and he has been outspoken no doubt about it i think they were looking for an excuse to get rid of him And I think there are dark forces at work here.
1: Uh, I don't think that's the only place where there are dark forces at work. I note, uh, much as I repudiate the manner in which she makes many of her comments, I have yet to find a single one of her comments that isn't fundamentally true. Yet Katie Hopkins has been removed from Twitter. Hang on,
0: can can we make that clear? She still has a Twitter account. Many of her tweets have been deleted. She's not using it. Hang on. No, I'm going to finish this point. Many of her tweets have been removed. And at this moment in time, she cannot access her account.
1: Uh, Correct. And at the same time, George Galloway is being investigated for telling the truth. Mm. Uh, Inconvenient truths frequently. Uncomfortable truths often. But he is A, stating the truth, B, stating his opinion, and C, what happened to freedom of speech? Well,
0: George Galloway is an acquaintance of mine, as you know, and um, I had an exchange of messages with him earlier in the week, actually. And I think what it is here is there's been a a lobbying of some pretty extreme characters on a number of issues have been trying to get George Galloway shut down for some time. Now, people can debate as much as they like, with Katie Hopkins, with George Galloway, with me, with you, with anybody else, with Alastair Stewart even. But I think when we are shutting people down on Twitter on the basis of a meeting Rachel Riley had with somebody senior in Twitter in this country during the week, I think we are well on our way to tyranny. And to balance that up, George Galloway hasn't broken the law, neither has Katie Hopkins. There are people who do break the law on Twitter, With threats, abuse, violent language, who get to keep their accounts active. And I mean people who do these disgusting threats, including to George Galloway in the last week, and I'm talking about Scottish nationalists here, from behind pseudonyms, and Twitter does nothing. They have threatened George Galloway. They have threatened his wife, who is pregnant at the moment. They have threatened his children. He has got the police involved, and yet Twitter does nothing. And that is a disgrace.
1: And when it comes to complaining about racism, if you're white, about incitement and the like, or about obscenity on the internet, the police are about as much use as a soup sandwich.
0: I know. (laughs) You're talking to me here. (laughs) Yes, I know.
1: They cannot be trusted. They cannot be relied on. And they can play a long game of keep on kicking the can down the road so that they never actually have to do their job. And we saw that, and we saw it very clearly, uh when it came to the Pakistani and Kashmiri Muslim grooming gangs who are believed to have raped somewhere in the region systematically somewhere in the region of 19,000 young girls. Yet the police, the politicians, and the social workers have done next best to nothing about it because they're frightened of upsetting that community. Mm -hmm. Katie Hopkins Mm -hmm. has been kicked off, effectively kicked off Twitter for making just that point. So I rather hope, since you're hosting this podcast, that you won't be kicked off the internet for telling the truth.
0: As George Galloway said in his excellent monologue, which uh, was part of his programme on RT, um, he said, Even if you kill me, you will not shut me up, because there's my children after me who will continue. And I know they're not going to shut George up, they're not going to shut me up, and they're not going to shut you up. So we'll end on that note. And I'd finally just like to end with a point here. I wish Alistair Stewart all the very best. I think we will hear his voice again on the radio because I think he will be back on doing radio work before too much longer. I'd put money on that if I could, actually. And if there is anything any of us can do to support him, I'm more than happy to do so because he has been treated appallingly and it is tyrannical what has happened to him this last year. May I
1: add to that? Much as I disagree with Katie Hopkins on a number of items, I totally endorse her right to freedom of speech.
0: Within as long as there's, as I say, no threats to anybody's safety and there's no breaking of laws. Um, I, as I said to George Galloway in my exchange with him uh, the other day, sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't, but I'll certainly defend his right to say these things. And if you if you will not defend other people's rights to express opinions in a lawful way, then don't be surprised if there is nobody left to defend you when the mob comes after you.
1: Uh, Do bear in mind, and I do apologise to those who are listening, it's obviously a challenging night for Marcus. First, he challenges Richard Burton with his Shakespearean quote, and now he's challenging Voltaire. (laughs) What is the time? (laughs) <laughs> getting late two
0: minutes past two Let, let's sign off there thank you very much for listening my thanks to greg as always and we'll see you again next week goodness knows what we're going to talk about hope you've enjoyed this bumper edition see you then